Marriage, of course, is near to the heart of God. It is part of God's plan for life and salvation. The imagery of marriage just continues to come through. We see it all the time. The Bible begins, in fact, with a marriage. Thank you for downloading our podcast. Make sure you subscribe to get new ones every week. And don't forget to check out First United Methodist Sweetwater's website and social media. Now, here is Pastor Ryan Strebeck. One of the greatest honors uh, of pastoral work for me is the privilege of walking with young couples, or just couples in general, not to be young, who are preparing for marriage. Uh, it's, it's those moments, and you can just see in their faces where they're out on the open road, all the world is before them, you know, it's just like you're holding the world in your hands, and you can just see all the potential and all the, you know, as the song said, the hopes and fears of all the years, right? It's just, it's just all there in their faces and in their giddiness and in their, you know, like, oh yeah, that does seem like a major thing, a major hurdle, but we'll get through it. Like, there's just great optimism, you know, as you're getting married. And thank God we don't know any better. You know, that's part of the blessing or else we wouldn't always do it. So, hey, it's just, you need stuff like that to make covenants or else we never would. And, uh, you know, marriage just possesses this great dignity, and you see it all, all around. And, and so one of the fun things that we always do is I ask them early on. And it's amazing because nine out of ten folks, if you ask them, do you, you, know, do you want to do the traditional vows? Or do you, it's kind of in vogue to write kind of a few of your own vows. And almost everybody kind of look, thinks about it for the second. They say, well, you know, that sounds kind of like fun. And then, and then you read the old ones and you go, no, nah, we better just keep those in there. You know, because we, we all think we want to write something that's like, somehow more devoted. Like I was young and zealous when I got married. I was like, I want to write some vows that are just really capturing all of this. You know, like I, I promise, like as long as the moon is turning, it's, you know, whatever, some horrible line that I would have made and it'd probably be on some plaque somewhere. It would be to my eternal shame. But thank goodness we just kept the vows simple. You know, we went back to the good tried and true vows and most couples want to do that. And actually I always encourage them to, and uh, they want to add something that's fine. But then we spend the rest of our time usually going through those vows and saying, why is it important to say things like in sickness and in health? And in, you know, whether we have a lot or we have very little, why are those things so important? And they, of course, spell out what we mean by love. Will you love that person? Will you comfort that person? Will you honor and keep that person in sickness and health and forsaking all others? Be faithful to that person as long as you both shall live. I mean, and the gravity sets in. Why did Jesus go to that wedding in Cana that John read? Why, and why did John take the time to record it for us? This is chapter 2 of John's story. And here Jesus is at a wedding. And lots of fun stuff. They run out of wine. So Jesus eventually, you know, he provides some extra wine. Barrels and barrels and barrels of extra wine, mind you. Great story. Uh, and it's just fun. And when Jesus is there, and you know weddings then, just like now, are parties. They should be parties. They're great occasions. But why did Jesus go? Why did he mess with it? Every wedding liturgy, if you go old school, whether you're in the Episcopal tradition, the Catholic tradition, the Methodist tradition, the Lutheran tradition, everybody starts a wedding with something like this. The covenant of marriage was established by God in creation, and our Lord Jesus Christ adorned this manner of life by his presence and first miracle at a wedding in Cana of Galilee. It signifies to us the mystical union between Christ and his church, and Holy Scripture commends it to be honored 
among all people. Now, I'm thankful to my, my friend Steve Venable, uh, who is a pastor as well. And, and he said one time, he's, he's years and years, light years ahead of me in, in maturity and experience in doing this work. And he said one time, he said, what if, what if, you know, in addition to Jesus sort of adorning the wedding and making it beautiful by his presence and first miracle, what if Jesus went to the wedding because weddings are just beautiful? Like there's no way around it. What if that's why Jesus was there? And I thought that is the best way. That is so great to talk about that and to realize that Jesus noticed the beautiful things that God had created. So it didn't matter whose wedding it was or what was going on. It was a wedding for crying out loud. And Jesus was there. I love that about him. He was invited to the wedding. He went to the wedding. He had fun at the wedding. It was a great time. Marriage, of course, is near to the heart of God. It is part of God's plan for life and salvation. The imagery of marriage just continues to come through. We see it all the time. The Bible begins, in fact, with a marriage. There's a marriage in the Garden of Eden, and the Bible ends with a marriage. There's a great marriage that happens that we read about in the book of Revelation, the marriage feast of the Lamb, right? When God will gather all the people from all tongues and tribes and nations, and there's this final feast where Jesus, the victorious bridegroom, has conquered all sin and death forever, and he's the host of this party that is eternal, and we're invited as the church because we're the bride, we're, the bride, we're there, we're, we're the guest of honor, and Jesus reigns forever. That's the final vision. Begins with a marriage, finishes with a marriage, and we're united with Christ perfectly for all eternity. So why are we talking about the dignity of marriage today? Well, it'd be good to talk about the dignity of marriage anytime, but we're talking about marriage today because we're in a series on the Ten Commandments, or the Ten Words, as we realize to call them, as the Scriptures refer to them as the Ten Words, these words that are, that are signaling life, that are laying out patterns of behavior for God's people. Remember, these are in-house rules. These are in-house calls. This is God's people preparing to learn how to live as not slaves anymore. And so God is spelling out the ways that they can live together and honor and worship God and then also honor one another and love one another. It's the earliest version we have of what we now know as the greatest commandment where Jesus says you should love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength and love your neighbor as yourself. That's the texture of the Ten Commandments. They start with God and they it permeated throughout is love for God by loving our neighbor. And so we see this with just this increasing particularity. We love and honor our parents by taking care of them when they're old, those that are vulnerable in our society. Uh, we love and honor people. We bring life by not taking away life uh, out of rage and when it's unnecessary. And then today we talk about why we don't take life away from each other through adultery. Now I know adultery is a million dollar word and it's a buzzword and all that stuff. So I've, I've been trying to figure out how do we define the word adultery for our purposes and I'm, I'm happy with this. I'm going to share it with you. And this, I think, is what basically is happening when we see adultery in the Scriptures. Because there's a lot of other things we could talk about that, that are different from the word, where the word adultery comes in. But here's what I think we're talking about. Adultery is a self-serving act that violates my own and someone else's covenant of marriage. All right? It's a self-serving act that violates my own covenant of marriage and someone else's covenant of marriage. That's 
pretty much what it is. It's about protecting the next person. Remember how we talked about the 10 words as sort of a bill of rights, only it's the bill of rights for the next person? It's like until I can protect my neighbor's rights, then whatever else I do, you know, it's, it's, there's not real freedom there. So it's part of my job to secure the freedom for a non-competition marriage for my neighbor. That's, that's what non-adultery looks like. So adultery, the self-serving act that violates my marriage covenant, someone else's marriage covenant, it does so by breaking trust and by tearing apart what another has struggled to build. Now, it's important that we remember anytime we talk about sexuality that our sexuality is not the most fundamental thing about us. We are first human beings created in the image of God and our sexuality is not the most important or fundamental thing about us. It's weighty and critical, but it's not the most important thing. Sometimes we talk about it like it is, like there's no other way to be identified than by our sexuality. And that becomes a real problem, especially in the church where we champion people as they are, created as they are, in the image of God. Now, so while our sexuality is not our most fundamental reality, the good news is we have to affirm that our bodies, our feeble bodies, bear the image of God, and our bodies possess these perfect longings, which we have to learn over a lifetime to befriend and to pay attention to. These are good longings that we have within us, right? They're not things to notice and then go, oh gosh, you're awful, get away from me. These are glorious things that we befriend and we learn how to wrestle with and champion and govern. Now, given that we must celebrate the dignity of our bodily desires, we, of course, must not subordinate ourselves to them and let them rule entirely. God gives us grace, after all, to rule over our passions. So, how do we rule over our passions? How do we navigate life when the temptations toward adultery come? And, of course, they will come. It doesn't matter who you are, where you are, they will come. Remember the story of Joseph? This is one of my favorite stories in all of Scripture. And it's great to tell to young people and old people alike. But in Genesis 39, you remember the Joseph story. Joseph has been taken into captivity. He's an, he's an alien. He's a foreigner. And he's put to work in the house of a guy named Potiphar who worked for Pharaoh. He was kind of a right-hand man. He was a big deal. Joseph had a lot of responsibility God was with Joseph, so he quickly was recognized as someone you wanted in your house. He made your house better. He so well took care of everything that the guy that owned everything said, all I have to worry about is pretty much when dinner is. And that's what he said. I just have to eat. That's all I got to do. Joseph handled everything else. And now think about this. Now, Joseph is a young, single guy, okay? Uh, I know you feel his pain. Joseph is a young, young, single guy. And the Bible tells us in 39, Genesis 39, verse 6, now Joseph was handsome in form and appearance. All right? Joseph was an all right guy to look at. And after some time, his master's wife cast her eyes on Joseph and said, hey, would you lie with me? But Joseph refused and said to his master's wife, behold, because of me, my master has no concern about anything in the house and has put everything that he has in my charge he is not greater in this house than I am, nor has he kept back anything from me except you because you are his wife. And this is the great question that he asked that we should all ask when we're tempted and struggle. How then can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? And as she spoke to Joseph day after day, 
Joseph would not listen to her, to lie beside her, or to be with her. What is Joseph concerned about? What's his motivation for not succumbing to this? He says, how can I do this and offend God? This, this would be offending God by interfering with someone else's marriage. That's, that's, what he, that's what the whole thing was about. And of course, she frames Joseph and has him arrested, and that's a, another story. But God takes care of Joseph. He doesn't abandon him when he's there in prison. How do we navigate life when it's hard in this way? Uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, the great uh, German Lutheran scholar and church leader who was martyred uh, in 1944 in a concentration camp for his faith, he reflects on this, and he says it so well. He says, our bodies are glorious because they belong to Jesus Christ. Jesus' body was crucified, and the key to our living a holy life looks like this. So Bonhoeffer quotes Galatians 5, 24, and he says, if we belong to Jesus Christ, then we have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Right, so our bodies belong to Jesus. That's partially why they're glorious. And so when we belong to Jesus, we give Christ everything. So we crucify those passions and the things that would seek to rule over us and get disordered. We crucify those because Jesus was crucified in this hopeful manner. So Bonhoeffer goes on to say that the sight of Jesus' crucified body, which was given for us, and our communion with it, right? So every time we receive the Eucharist, every time we receive Holy Communion, we're beholding the crucified body of Jesus. And from that, by beholding it and receiving communion, we're deriving strength by the power of the Holy Spirit to overcome any temptation, but we wonder, how will I have the strength? I mean, because we have some major things that we're up against. So we know this, and we look around. It's easy to see. I don't have to spell out all the stuff that's hard about this. We know this. We've known this since we were little. But we ask, how will I have the strength? And we know that it's a lifelong battle, to be sure. We should not treat it like anything other than that. But it is possible, if we're willing to contemplate Jesus on the cross and receive Holy Communion, receiving the strength and help and power that God supplies this is possible. Uh, I, and it doesn't have to just be about temptation to adultery, but just anything, any temptation. One of the things that I depend heavily on, and I don't even remember who taught me the first time, but you have different things in the Christian tradition called, some people call them breath prayers, or there's these little short, easily memorizable prayers that we can say at any moment without really thinking about it. You know, when you're in a bind and you really need strength, you really need to get out of something, uh, one of them you'll hear people talk about is the Jesus prayer. Uh, Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Uh, there's different ways to pray that, and people use that. Uh, one that I love is from Psalm 70. It's just Psalm 70, verse 1. And it simply says, Be pleased, O God, to deliver me. O Lord, make haste to help me. God, take pleasure in getting me out of this jam. Take pleasure in rescuing me. Be pleased to deliver me. Right? Come quickly and give me strength because I need strength here. May you be glorified in that. Just Sometimes those short little things are, are just critical for helping us get through. So as we navigate this road and we steer clear of um, the temptations to adultery that are all around us, I also want to just call attention to and just kind of name again like we did last week anytime we talk about these difficult things that we really and truly spend our whole lives 
working through and avoiding and, and staying away from and then working out their positive corollaries. Um, there's so much restoration and forgiveness that is possible and necessary and hopeful every time we talk about these kinds of things. Because, uh, and so you remember the story when uh, Jesus, just a little further a- after the wedding, a little further along in John chapter 8, and Jesus has been out and he comes back to the temple to teach. And these lawyers and the supreme lawgivers are trying to trap Jesus. They're trying to figure out a way to get him killed and get him out of here. He's driving them crazy. And so uh, they, they come to the temple area and they drag this woman, John tells us, was caught in adultery. Remember the story? And, and they're thinking, okay, we're really going to, really, they don't care about the woman at all. They're, she's just a pawn in their story. They're just trying to trap Jesus. So they drag this poor woman in and they say, hey, Jesus, got a little riddle for you. Um, the law says that a woman like this, we have to stone. Hey, what do you say? And not to mention the fact that there, there was a guy involved, right? And the law also said it was the guy's responsibility to guard the issue of adultery. So where the guys were, we don't know. Jesus doesn't even give them the dignity of their question. Instead, he, he bends down in one of the most moving scenes of Jesus. Uh, he, he kneels down in the dirt and he begins to write something in the dirt. And of course, we all wonder, well, what was Jesus writing in the dirt? But he writes in the dirt, and then he just kind of calmly, the way Jesus does, and diffuses the situation, and he said, okay, I'll tell you what. How about the first one of you guys uh, that is without sin, how about you, you pick up the stone first, and we'll get, we'll get on with this. And of course, what happens, they all begin to walk away one by one, beginning with the elders. They realize, okay, well, none of us can throw rocks then, if that's what it's about. And they realize, like, oh, okay. And so then Jesus goes directly to this woman, right? And John's able to record this. I'm guessing the woman told this story after the fact and said, this glorious thing I want to talk about. And Jesus goes to her and speaks to her in person, just in their space. And he says, uh, woman, where, where's everybody? Uh, does anyone condemn you? Where are they at? And she said, well, no, there's no one here to condemn me. And he said, well, neither do I condemn you. He says, go and leave your life of sin, right? There's a hopeful vision. Go from this place and you can live differently. It's possible. You can do this. And so he just takes away all possibility of shame. And the way that Jesus does, and when we're in the presence of Jesus and we're in the church, we should be able to navigate these things without shame. Because remember the difference in guilt and shame? I have to be reminded of this all the time. Guilt is, I did a bad thing. I did something wrong. And shame says, I am something wrong, right? I am a bad thing. It's a world of difference. We need to notice guilt. Guilt is a gift. It goes, oh, I'm off track. I got to get back on track. You know, it's like a tire that's out of balance. Guilt is a blessing to see like, oh, okay, I got to get things right. But shame has no place in the church. Shame has no place in our families. And shame has no place in our lives. We should always be working to clear away all shame that would try to exist among the people of God. Wouldn't it be great if we easily and readily paid attention to guilt over the ways we've been broken in the world without falling into shame so that we could get well? Wouldn't it be great if young girls could grow up knowing that the weight of the whole world does not depend on their sexuality? Wouldn't it be great if that culture was present. 
I want to close with the positive dimension of this word. So every time we look at, okay, what's the negative dimension? How do we break it? And then, but what's the positive dimension? If, if the commandment is no adultery, then what's the positive dimension of that? How do we live this commandment out? And so the question is, how do we strengthen the marriages of our neighbor? That's the question. If we can answer that question, that's the positive dimension of living this word. How can I, what can I do today to strengthen the marriage of my neighbor? And then, of course, what can I do to strengthen my own marriage? But what can I do to look out for the interest of my married neighbors? And this doesn't matter if we're married or single or whatever. We all have opportunities and parts to play here. One of the great things that we can do that I see among you that we're always doing and seeking to do better is to cultivate real and meaningful friendships. If we have strong, meaningful friendships, it will strengthen our marriages. The best way to, to help to strengthen your neighbor's marriage is to befriend them and love them and encourage them to walk with you in the way that leads to life. This is the joy that we have of having friends. I know you'll have ideas. I'd love to hear your ideas. What have been the things that have made the difference for you? What have people done for you to help strengthen your marriage? What have you been able to do for others that people have said, gosh, I don't think I could have made it through that if you hadn't helped me with this or if we hadn't had the community around us? Uh, what about caring for caregivers when one spouse is having to care for another and the community surrounds them to help them do that? That's one way of helping them realize their vows, right? We committed, hey, I'm with you in sickness and in health, and it gets really, really hard when a spouse is sick, and we have to fight through that with them. And so what do people do, what do we do to help marriages thrive? I've had in my mind uh, several of you that I've watched do this, but um, I've also had in mind some friends from back home. And uh, I talked to this guy on the phone last night, and, and I said, well, I'd like to tell your story a little bit, and, and I, I won't use your names, you know, I'll change your names. And he said, I don't care if you use our names. Please do. He said, we want people to know what God has done. And uh, so their names are Max and Cherry. And I've known Max and Cherry since I was little. They were best friends of my parents. And so I watched them growing up. Max and I went to the same high school and uh, just had a lot of connections growing up. I always respected him. Uh, Max is an attorney there in our hometown. And um, about a year ago, a little over a year ago, Sherry suffered a terrible, terrible stroke. And they're faithful, devout Christians. The details of this story are unbelievable, and I'm not going to take the time to share them all. And I hope that Max and Sherry can share them someday, and maybe even with us, their, their details to share. But for now, I have to share what I've seen from a distance and through the local reports of their close friends. Through this whole process, Max and Sherry grew in their love for God and their devotion for one another. I watched as Max put his life on hold. I don't even know the half of it, but I watched him put his life on hold to take care of her while she was in the inpatient rehabilitation for, I think it was around five months. Uh, and just watching this, the great pains that were taken to take care of his spouse, to fulfill his vows to her. Months and months and months and months. And when I was talking to him last night, he said, well, you know, Ryan, that's what the sickness and in health thing is all about. I thought that's a glorious vision. Every person that's considering marriage should contemplate that reality. What would it look like for me to have to care for this person? 
when they couldn't take care of themselves. The other thing he said was, you know, we couldn't have done it without the church. We couldn't have done it without the community rallying around us. And Max grew up on a farm. He said, it's like in the old days when somebody would get sick and it was harvest time and they would loan you a combine or they would come drive yours for a little while until you recovered and you could get back in the field. And he said, that's what it was like. He said, people were just taking things for me and doing things for me and we were able to get together and I was able to take care of Sherry. And then he even went one step further and said, you know, it was kind of a wake-up call for me. He said, it, it reminded me that I was not prioritizing my walk with God. And he said, we began to pray every morning and pray in the evening before Sherry went to bed. And, and it was so moving. And I know that it's still a fight. It's still a fight every day. But what I observed from a distance was the glory of marriage on display. And I think that's what's at stake. That's what we have the opportunity to be a part of encouraging day in and day out. Wherever we are, however young or however old we are, we all can have a part to play in the strengthening of this beautiful institution that God calls marriage. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, amen.